Ciao, I'm Laura, and this is Job Tales. Today, we delve into the film world. I met Hamish McLeod when we were working in Cape Town at Black Sails, an American television series about pirates. I will let Hamish talk about his job, starting with his experience as an armorer and swordmaster at Black Sails. Hamish, the floor is yours. Wow, Black Sails. That was a long time ago now. <laughs> I'll try and remember. I went down to South Africa to be, more specifically, the swordmaster on Black Sails. Mm-hmm. I'd been down to Cape Town and to the, uh, the studios down there working for Film Africa on a production just before Black Sails started. It was part of, uh, it was one of Ridley Scott's projects. It was called Labyrinth. And I'd got sort of picked out as an armourer and flown down to the studios, lock, stock and barrel, with basically anything and everything that I needed to provide all of the swords and armour, uh, shields, uh, other types of weaponry for a big medieval film that they were making. Mm-hmm. Uh, when that concluded, obviously all of the guys down in South Africa had opportunity to see what I do and um, see how I work. And shortly after, I was approached by um, the Black Sales team to come down and do the same. So initially, it was just going to be sort of eight episodes, one season, a few months' work down there. So we did the same thing. I just you know, prepared everything in the UK, packed everything up, flew it down to, to Cape Town, set myself up in, uh, in the studios down there, and uh, we just administered all of the needs of the sword aspect of the show. They had a local guy who had all of the muskets and bits and pieces, so we were working side by side. But obviously, with the swords and the daggers, there's sort of this element of risk. Because in season one, they decided from the outset that it it was not going to be a pirate film in the traditional way that, you know, everyone's got a parrot on their shoulder or an eye patch and a three-cornered hat. There was none of that. This was dark, dangerous, and they wanted this to be reflected in the sword fights. And so being dangerous, do you need to actually train the actors and um, also teach them about safety rules and so forth? Very much so. There's a few other layers of precaution in front of that. Even before the actors were introduced to me, we had to go through a whole process of how can we design and build swords where the actors can really truthfully and honestly fight against each other. Mm. Unlike all of your, your Hollywood sword fights where they're using rubber or plastic or, or, or you can see they're obviously missing each other. The producers at Black Sales just said, no, nah, none of that. We want it full on, full contact, almost as if we're watching sports. We're watching gladiators fighting. This was the brief that I was given. I sort of, I've had a little bit of experience of this. Well, not a little bit. I've had a lot of experience of this because it's sort of the discipline that we have to adhere to when we do live action performances on the stage. Obviously, you know, when you have big performances on stage, uh, big Shakespearean jobs, the audience are watching, they are there, they are sat in front of the performers 
they can see if you're making contact, yes or no. Mm-hmm. So we'd already developed this whole process of how do we manufacture a sword that looks the part, sounds right, but is not going to be dangerous for the actors to use. However, on the flip side of that, they have to have liberty to really have full contact and fight against each other. So, so that was the initial brief when I went down. I also guess you need to also own or uh, you know have access to a lot of firearms and weapons. And I also know that you have uh, quite deal, a great deal of vehicles from the World War II, for instance. Um, how do you get there? To answer part of that question, you might well wake up in the morning and decide you want to be an armourer. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. Um, There are, as far as I know, there are very few, if any, opportunities to go away and just study to become an armourer, whereby at the end of that course, somehow you become an armourer. You hit the nail on the head when you said that we've got, you know, collections of this, that and the other. An essential part of being a working armourer and a practical armourer is you have to have the resources. You've got to have the assets for people to use. Unlike being a DOP or a sound recorder or anything like that, you know, other sort of HODs within our industry, we can't go out and just hire it. There aren't machine gun shops on the corner of the high street that you can go and just rent what you need for the day. Right. <laughs> um, and likewise, you know, yes, you can buy swords on the internet, but they're not suitable for use in our industry. So, yeah, it is something that I always explain to everybody that the actual job of being an armor it is vocational. It takes an awful long time to get to the position where you're of use to the industry. There's two types of armourers that you will meet on a daily basis if you hang around uh, studios and film sets. The first are people who are just utilising what is available at the time. And then you come across every now and again the old school armourer who are not using other people's equipment. They have researched, manufactured and designed all of their own stock and it has been specifically manufactured to to meet the needs of the production. I started as a performer. I started many, many years ago working in front of camera using other people's swords and guns supplied to me by old-school armourers. And it was my interest and fascination and the development of my career as a user of these things that enabled me one day to turn around and say, I think I should have my own. 35 years ago, I started with, you know, 10, 15, 20 bits and pieces that I could take along to work with me. And, you know, over the years, it's grown to the large resources that we have now. How many do you have? Oh, (laughs) I know my accountant will be writhing in agony if I tell him the truth. Uh, I don't know. Um, (laughs) Each time I work on a project, I start afresh. I like to supply new things, unseen things to productions. 
which means each time we finish a project, I've got yet another collection that gets mm. folded into our standby stock of guns or artillery or armoured vehicles or swords. So sometimes we have to cannibalise a few bits and pieces to, to just change their look. We can't just keep everything all the time forever and ever. So there's a little bit of churning of, of stock that we have. But just loosely, I suppose we've got about, we've got about 10,000 swords. Mm. We've probably got, I don't know, two, two and a half thousand different types of firearms. We've got a very large barn just full of vehicles. But also, you know, we have the supporting stuff that goes with it. We do have about 15,000 uniforms in stock. So, you know, over time, it, it slowly adds up. A lot of that is just due to the fact that we don't sell anything. Mm. Um, I've never felt the need to sell things off. I've always had the desire just to expand our premises and just find somewhere to put all this stuff. It might just be sort of, I don't know, sentimental value, or it might be that subconsciously I'm aware that someone in the future will want this again, so I'll keep hold of it. Did you ever feel the need to advertise yourself or did you go on from one production to another, be it stage or be it film? I personally, with my company, I've never advertised. Hmm. I've never had an advertisement. I know that we're listed in several sort of reference books and we're on several lists industry lists as what we do but those, those that, that's been done by other people not us mm. when i first started i was working for three or four renowned sort of fight coordinators stunt coordinators a few producers and directors who were getting a lot of the type of work that i was doing And they obviously thought that I was of use because they, they kept phoning me and asking me to come and do another job. The day I decided to form my own company, it was because we'd had an explosion and a change in the UK. We now had satellite television, which later became you know cable television. So instead of having two, three or four channels for people to watch, suddenly there were 30 or 40 And they were all wanting new content. So work for me, working on drama documentaries and historical films and stuff like that, it just, it, it just went from strength to strength. But I, I had nothing to do with that. I happened to just be in the right place at the right time. So what I was doing, rather than advertising and looking for work, I was literally running as fast as I could with my small team of people who I'd collected around me to help You know, manage this monster, we were literally traveling from one film set to another, to another, to another. We ended up buying two or three large lorries and we were packing everything we could possibly need because it's not, a, I'm not lying, this is absolutely true. We'd be driving home from one film and the phone would ring and we'd have to divert from going home to go off to another county somewhere in England to suddenly refight the Battle of Hastings or something. <laughs> it was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. Uh, wonderful, absolutely wonderful. 
But we were part of a network. There were four or five major production companies, and there was like 10 or 11 well-established directors who basically, because they were being successful, they wanted to continue their success formula. And we were part of that. We were the individuals getting on horses, getting muddy, getting bloody. And, and it was great. It was a great life. Can't complain <laughs> at all. Um, but certainly, the, you know, like your, your question earlier, no, there was no college course or university course. There's no degree. In it. it was literally you start at the bottom and you work your way up. Mm. Although you did study in the uh, deep school of arts or drama, right? Indeed. I went to art school. I went to art school because, according to my entire family, I was the one that was not going to go into the military. I was the one that was going to become more of an academic, and I, I was going to go to art school because I could draw and paint. <laughs> so I dutifully went off to art school, and within two or three weeks, I'd got sucked into the production design and theatre design side of things. I ran off to be an extra in a feature film, thoroughly enjoyed it, and had two or three experiences of that whilst I was at art school. So when I graduated from art school, the last thing I was going to do was be a book illustrator or go into advertising. I just wanted to get into film and television. You know, I, I'd got mm. the bug by then. So, yeah, it gave me four years of intense study in the design, design concepts. And also I had the luxury and the utter privilege to go off and work in, in feature films whilst I was there, um, just as an extra but it got me into the understanding of how the industry worked. So I had an idea of what I really wanted to do when I graduated art school. Mm. It took a few years to get into the position so I, I could make it happen because obviously <laughs> art students aren't renowned for being rich. So when I graduated, like everyone else, you know, it, the burning issue of the day was what I was going to eat and where was I going to sleep above, you know, can I get sort of 40 or 50 muskets together to go and refight the Battle of Waterloo? So, you know, it took a while. I, I had to do some of those jobs that everyone has to do to, you know, get a roof over your head, whilst at the same time volunteering my services, you know, within the, the industry. And, you know, the as I say, it was vocational. I never went on the holidays. I never had the, you know, you know 1830s holidays in Club Med or, or the flashy sports cars or anything like that. I, di I didn't have all of that because that wasn't my goal. I was busy learning how to tailor uniforms and uh, working alongside, volunteering my time with guys to learn how to make swords, how to how to make firearms, how to service them, et cetera, et cetera. So I made my decision early on in life and just stuck to it. Mm -hmm. Funnily enough, I mean, the, how things come full circle. Now I'm actually lecturing at university. Oh, uh, yeah? In production design, yes. Oh, amazing. <laughs> that, that's my latest job. <laughs> so it's funny how things, yeah, full circle. Here Comes around, yes. Ah, yeah, now, now I lecture in it. At <laughs> so for, in order to handle firearms, you, of course, also need to have some kind of license and you need to be regi a registered dealer. Is that correct? Absolutely. 
It's what makes the difference between a true armourer and someone who is a props armourer. Recently, many, many films have satisfied their needs for guns and swords by going to the props department and getting them just to make um, rubber, plastic or wooden replicas of what they need and then basically just film it in a way so it looks like it's the real stuff. CGI has enabled them to put gun flashes on and et cetera, et cetera. But a true armourer, you can only be that if the authorities actually state that you are. When I first started to work with firearms, I had to start the very long process of first getting myself registered and licensed to use firearms then getting my company allowed to use and hold firearms for theatrical purposes. And then after about 10 years of proving that we were doing the job and uh, we had a track record and evidence that we were doing this safely, correctly, we then applied for the highest qualification to be a true armourer in the film industry whereby the government, the Home Secretary, uh, the Home Office themselves, grant you licence to have weapons that are actually prohibited. You have to go through the hands of the police, and then you go into the hands of the, the government, the Home Office, and then you come out the other side and you have your qualification. I was very, very lucky that because I had so much work with like the BBC and with, with Channel 4 and Granada Television, Channel 5, uh, uh, you know, French companies, all kinds of things. Because I had so much work, I think there was enough evidence that there was the need for us to, to get up this qualification scale so that our firearms requirements would be met just as much as our swords and axes and all of that could be met. The other thing that had to be taken into consideration is that you might well get a license, but can you get the insurance? Mm. That was harder. So that's (laughs) another step. That's another step because it's a chicken and egg situation. An insurance company is not going to insure you to handle lethal firearms in the hands of A-list actors unless you've got the qualification for it and the licensing Mm -hmm. for it. But they won't give you the licensing for it unless you can prove you've got the insurance to cover the acts that you're going to do. Oh, wow. So how do you manage? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, basically, you have to cross your fingers and hope that these two things can happen at the same time. And for me, Fortunately, you know, I had a great police liaison officer who totally understood our situation. And my local police force actually helped and coordinated the whole transition up from just being just being a registered firearms dealer for film and theatre up to being a, a Section 5 government, you know, prohibited weapon exempt dealer. Mm. So, you know, it's by keeping open and working with the authorities it worked in our favor you know they they helped they understood that there was a need and indeed you know 
within our industry, there is a need for all of these weapons, whereas in normal society, of course, there isn't. Absolutely yeah. not. Yeah, um, so so we're, this, we're this weird breed of people who are being allowed to own and possess what the rest of society is trying to banish. It's an odd place to be. It really is. Some, when I first became fully, fully licensed, I had a few sleepless nights because I was wondering, well, do I actually want to be here? <laughs> I was, after all, an ex-art student, you know, I marched to free Nelson Mandela and, you know, I, I was in the poll tax riots and all that stuff. And then suddenly, uh, you know, I've got, you know, machine guns in, in the cupboard. And it's like, <laughs> it's, it, 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 yeah, there were moments of conflict of, do, should I be doing this? Do I want to do this? You know, after a while, I didn't have much option. I was swept along with the whole thing. And here I am now, looking back, of course, oh, I'm so grateful that we've been allowed and granted the, the this special permission, and I will just hold on to it with white knuckles to cherish it and keep it going. Not just for me, but it's for it's for like my son who's following up in the industry behind me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so that he has a future maintaining this service, maintaining this job. So for somebody who is young and ambitious and very passionate about becoming an armorer, what would you recommend? What would be your advice to this young man or young woman? Okay. You have to find someone who will take you under your wing. You will not and you cannot do it on your own. You just can't. Hmm. It's like a martial art. You can't just make it up. Someone has to show you step by step what you have to do. And you have to understand that it's not a luxury lifestyle. It's long, long days. There's an awful lot to learn. You have to have an interest in engineering You have to have an interest in physics. You have to have an interest in public relations because, of course, well, let's just go back and talk about black sales. I was shipped down there with a brief from the props master and from the production designer. And then one day the door opened on my room and all the cast members walked in, all of them. Not one of them had met me before. I didn't know who they were, and I had a table just full of swords, and it was the first time that they were being introduced to what was going to become a major part of their character and their characterization. Mm. And and basically, the first AD and and the director just left the room, left me to it. (laughs) Now, if you aren't prepared for that, that could just be like a, a tsunami that would just wash over you and, and end your career, you know, mm. because you're dealing with, in that situation, I was dealing with probably 12 superb actors who all knew their craft, who were as excited as school children to be, like, first introduced to all of these, you know, cool weapons. And I'm, I have to deal with that. I have to deal with it. And what I can't do is just sort of, you know, close into my shell and say, oh, I'm a techie, you know, and no, don't, don't talk to me. I'm, no, 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 no. 
you have to have the ability to communicate. You have to have the ability to be able to become friends with these people because at the end of the day, they're, they're trusting you to put, you know, good things in their hands and make them look good on film. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got a lot riding on this, you know, and uh, you have to understand that as an armourer. You have to understand that. And as a swordmaster, it's far, far more personal because you really are the extension of their performance. You're not going to learn that in a book, and you're not going to learn that in a two-week module at, at university. You're only going to learn that by being part of a working, practicing armory team, and you have to go in there and just see it, watch it, and understand the human side of our job. It's not just about you know knife blades and bullets. You have to be a people person. You have to be able to communicate. You have to be able to help some people improve their performance, but also sometimes you have to diffuse some people to keep them safe, you know? And that's why, you know, most of the people that I've worked with over the last 45 years, I have like a friendship with them, you know, even though we don't talk regularly, if at all. Still, they'll remember who I am and I remember who they are, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and if you can't do that, you're not going to survive as an armourer. You get inside their safety barrier. I wish we had more time to talk about all this. Thank you so much, Hamish, for taking the time. And I hope that maybe another time we'll have some more 20, 30 minutes to talk about different other aspects of your job. It's very, very exciting. That'll be lovely. It's been a pleasure talking with you.